It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Rick Olderman about how living through chronic pain helped to inform his physical therapy practice. Rick has a history of chronic neck and back pain that resulted from a series of sports injuries and occupational strain in his youth. Rick went to physical therapy school in the hopes of learning how to solve his own chronic pain issues. In fact, he kept this a secret because he worried that he'd be kicked out of school if they discovered his ulterior motive. He didn't want to rely on others to solve his pain. He wanted to learn how to do it himself. He noticed that everything he was learning seemed to be focused on individuals with acute pain, not focused on helping people with long-term chronic pain. Since then, it's been his mission to discover techniques that do work for chronic pain, going outside of the box, experimenting, and developing his own methodology. Rick has a fascinating perspective as not only a chronic pain patient, but also a practitioner. And I was super interested to discuss some really important topics with him. He'll talk to us about the belief systems of practitioners and how that can limit the options they're willing to present to their patients, as well as the way that medicine is taught, how everything is broken down into components, instead of looking at the body as a system in which everything is connected to everything else. I found Rick to be a very passionate, enthusiastic, inquisitive person to interview, and it made for such a great episode. So I'm really excited to share this interview with you, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. Two weeks ago on the podcast, we interviewed Jeff about his mysterious episodes where he goes catatonic, loses the ability to communicate, and the only thing that will break him out of these episodes is to fall asleep, even for just a couple of minutes. This was the first time that we've really put out the call to our community to say, hey, we have a mystery here and we need your help, so let me know if you have any ideas. And I got a lot of responses. I have to say, I was so proud of this community after releasing this episode. The amount of thoughtful, compassionate, and helpful information that I got was amazing. So I wanted to compile it all together and share it with you today on the podcast, not just to share it with you because it's interesting, but also because I wanted to compile all of this for Jeff so that Jeff can take a listen to this and say, okay, here's all this information. Let me parse through this and see what feels like it might be something worth taking to my doctor or not to allow Jeff to have a quick list of things to run through with his doctor for his next appointment. So let's get into this. We got a lot of interesting stuff to discuss. Several people agreed with some of Jeff's theories that were worth looking into, including possible migraine aura or a seizure disorder. And several other diagnoses were mentioned by quite a few people, including cataplexy and myasthenia gravis. This is a comment on TikTok from Dana Shut Up. I've had similar experiences with my myasthenia gravis, and getting even a brief nap helps. Ptosis, muscle exhaustion, inability to speak, and feeling the weight of every inch of my body are usually involved in episodes. I feel hyper aware of being trapped in my body and can't function, honestly. This is a shot in the dark, but that's what I've experienced with myasthenia gravis, and it's taken decades to put clues together. Good luck, Jeff. Dana, shut up. Thank you for this comment. I actually reached out to see if they were interested in coming on the show because this really piqued my interest. I'd love to learn more about myasthenia gravis, and we are working to make that happen. Something else that came up a lot was cataplexy. A comment from IIH Warriors, who is one of our previous podcast guests, says, This sounds just like my cataplexy episodes from narcolepsy. The only thing that helps is sleep slash nap. For the longest time, they thought it was seizures or migraines from my IIH. A few people brought up MCAS. This is from Bayou Catfish. Okay, so I'm still undiagnosed, but I experienced those episodes, and it sounds like histamine overload, similar to MCAS. And I, of course, am still being uh, evaluated for MCAS myself. And I actually brought this up with Jeff also because I've had, you know, really bizarre episodes that I now think are MCAS related. So, you know, I talked to Jeff about that myself. The one piece that doesn't make sense to me is the falling asleep piece. Um, that's not something that I've experienced helping with MCAS stuff, but who knows? Pauline Campos, another of our previous podcast guests who was on talking about MCAS, says, I've had mast cell brain fog like this. Alice in Wonderland-like episodes. And this was really interesting because I got a great email that I need to share with you about Alice in Wonderland syndrome. This email is from Jill, and it's called Info for Jeff and His Sensory Episodes. I just listened to your pod with Jeff and wanted to pass along for him to look into AIWL syndrome, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. While each person's episodes are unique, they're often sensory experiences that are not based in reality. Body feeling heavy or light, things looking too big or small. 
odd spatial and dissociative feelings, time feeling too slow or fast, lights and noises are extreme and overwhelming, often unable to speak or communicate what is happening, shaky body, can look and feel like an absent seizure, but no seizure activity in the brain. Episodes can be triggered by stress, tiredness, certain smells or places. No one really knows exactly. It usually appears in childhood and many outgrow it, but some don't. I had it strongly as a child and less now. My son has it and laying down is what helps him, or time. But the quick nap like Jeff mentioned can often help my son faster than just waiting it out. My son and I are both autistic, have migraine disease, MCAS and connective tissue disorder, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. All of these connections run in packs and show up in different ways. So again, knowing Jeff is neurodivergent due to his Tourette's, has genetic migraine connection and these sensory experiences, it could possibly be a combination of these things. And of course, I'm not a doctor, just an advocate for rare chronic illnesses, and I live with a few myself. Thanks for your podcast. I've been enjoying hearing everyone's stories. I passed that email along to Jeff and, of course, thanked Jill for this great email. Here's a comment from Patreon from one of our patrons, Stitchspin. So I don't have any real idea about what Jeff's mystery could be. Just wanted to comment and say that I have been dealing with ocular migraines that I most likely inherited from my dad. I get some pretty strange visual auras that happen without the pain of a regular migraine. So wanted to jump in and say that migraines do not always come with pain. And continuing our discussion of migraines, this is from Copper Dust Woman on Instagram, my friend Olga, who says, This is so similar to what used to happen in my migraine prodrome. Suddenly things would start shutting down and I'd need to pass out and reset. It wasn't as intense slash sudden where it would cause an accident and there was a period of time, a couple of days, where I knew to expect it. And finally, I got this great DM on TikTok from Soph, which reads, I listened to Jeff's episode and I have some pretty similar issues. I also have Tourette's and have what an epileptologist called non-epileptic seizures. I can't move my eyes, my eyelids flutter, can barely move, tremor slash dystonia in arms and legs sometimes. I get very tired afterward, but can usually bounce back pretty quickly. They can last 10 seconds to like 30 plus minutes and it's a daily occurrence. I've also been diagnosed with drug-induced Parkinsonism from long-term antipsychotic use. Movement disorders can be a really common side effect of antipsychotics, especially first-generation ones like Haldol. The symptoms of that vastly improved when I stopped taking the antipsychotic. Symptoms were bradykinesia, weakness in hands, contractures in hands, loss of fine motor control, shuffling gait, and no right arm swing. Soph continues, and something that might be helpful, I'm on low-dose naltrexone, an incredible drug off-label use for many people with autoimmune diseases, nervous system issues, and chronic pain patients. And I'm a pharmacy technician, so I can talk about it slash explain it too. I know you're undiagnosed still, but it's a good non-opioid option for pain management as long as you can find a doctor who either knows about it or is willing to do research. It essentially blocks your endorphins, the body's morphine, just enough that the body overcompensates and produces more, which can both relieve pain and modulate the immune system, with relatively few side effects because it's such a low dose. I was also curious if Jeff had any more incidental findings on his MRIs or CTs. I have a pineal cyst that the neurologist said wasn't symptomatic, but it is definitely symptomatic. All of this is so interesting to me. Of course, I also asked Soph to come on the podcast and we are scheduling that. Um, but yeah, so this ties back to several episodes of the show that we've had in the past. Uh, we had Simon come on the show, talk about taking LDN, low-dose naltrexone for uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and how he is in complete remission after starting that drug. And it's something that I've been trying to get for myself. None of my doctors uh, can prescribe it for me. So I'm looking into um, you know, trying to find a naturopath possibly who might be able to prescribe it. My allergist who I'm working with on MCAS says that he thinks it's worth trying. It's just not something that he is uh, has ever prescribed before. And also we did an amazing episode with Misty about a pineal cyst, where we learned how these cysts can often be asymptomatic, but there are cases where there is the potential that they could be causing symptoms and it can be really difficult to figure out how to proceed. And I have spoken with Jeff since the podcast came out and his doctors are continuing to look into a seizure disorder, which I was really happy to hear. But from putting our heads together, a few other ideas have risen through the mix. I mean, how amazing is that to get this kind of feedback? It, this was a real eye-opener for me, Jeff's podcast. I, I, I've been really gun-shy about doing something like this for myself or my guests in the past about 
you know, asking for feedback, about asking the, the internet at large to weigh in. Because I've had so many experiences throughout my chronic illness career <laughs> where, you know, I, I would bring it up and someone would say, oh, well, have you tried yoga? Oh, well, have you tried this one specific diet that cures everything? And it's just like, you know, not helpful and aggravating. And then also like sometimes people accuse you of making it up or of being an attention seeker or of causing your own illness for one reason or another. And all those things are so awful to have to field all the time. And I didn't want to put myself or my guests in that position, but I decided to give it a shot with Jeff, you know, just through my conversation with my friend off mic before we recorded the podcast, just feeling like, you know, he doesn't know where to go next. He doesn't know what to try next. And maybe someone in our audience might. And I'm thrilled that we went for it. And I feel like, you know, this really opened my eyes to a potential that I had been sort of closed off to that you might be able to just kind of throw something out there on the internet and actually get some good result. We have built an amazing community of really supportive, thoughtful people who want to help who understand what it's like to live with something like this and who genuinely want to offer a suggestion that might lead Jeff in the right direction or our guests in the future. Cause I definitely want to do this again. You know, if we can leverage this platform to help people get diagnosed, what, I mean, that's like a dream, right? That's a dream for me as someone who uh, had no idea what was going on with me up until very recently, you know, knock on wood, we, we know what it is now. It's looking better and better all the time. I still live with this thing and manage it every day and still have, you know, some level of chronic pain and dysfunction, but I'm doing so much better since being on this MCAS medication. So it's looking like we are still on the right track with that being my diagnosis. And without the knowledge that I gained from doing this podcast, I don't know if we would have ever gotten onto that track. To, to have this potential diagnosis. So I've, I've really come around. I feel like, you know, we've built something here that could really help somebody who is living through a mystery. So, you know, I always love interviewing people with mystery illness. And I think taking this tactic of sharing their story and asking the audience, what do you think this is? I mean, that's a game changer for me and my mindset and how I'm approaching this show. So if you're out there, if you're listening and you have a mystery illness and you want us to do this for you, Hit me up, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join in on these discussions, you can follow us on social media at Major Pain Podcast on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, or you can leave a comment on any episode of the podcast on our website, majorpainpodcast.com. I have to say thank you to our listeners on Spotify. We are up to 26 five-star ratings on Spotify. That is phenomenal. Thank you all so much for your support. Spotify is really catching up to Apple Podcasts, which is still sitting at 33 ratings. So if you love the show and you want to support it, one of the best ways to do so is by leaving us a rating and review on whatever platform that you prefer or multiple platforms if you are an overachiever. If you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, I will spot it and share it on the show. But if you leave us a review on any other platform, make sure to take a screenshot and email it to me at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com because I would love to share it. To keep any project like this running, of course, we also need financial support. And that's where Patreon comes in. Patreon is an awesome platform that allows the listeners of this podcast to support its creation financially directly through monthly financial contributions. We have three tiers of support, our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, and our $25 per month producers. Each tier comes with different levels of recognition, special gifts like major pain coasters and tote bags, as well as monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. Our next bonus episode is going to be super fun because Andy and I went on an adventure last week. We went to something called Mushroom Fest, uh, and this is mushroom foraging, not psychedelic mushrooms, but we'll tell you all about it in the next bonus episode. So if you're interested in supporting this show, gaining access to those bonus episodes and recognition and gifts, head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your continued support is massively, massively important to keeping this show going, along with the rest of our Patreon community. Support through Patreon is accounting for a vast majority of the financial support that I get for creating this show. I'm not paid to do this. This is a passion project, and I put in a lot of time <laughs> that I'm very glad to do, but in order to keep the show going indefinitely, I have to find a way to support it financially, and Patreon so far has been the best way that I've figured out how to do so. If you have the resources to share, I would love your support on Patreon.
Another great way to support this podcast financially without having to spend a dime is by signing up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. If you have a diagnosis of any kind or you are a caregiver, you can sign up to participate in research studies and surveys and be paid an average of $120 per hour for your time. Use our affiliate link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, and this podcast will receive a $10 Amazon gift card when you sign up. It's a real win-win situation. This is such a cool program that I'm so glad to be involved with. The last thing I'll share with you before we jump into our interview with Rick is a reminder that I am not a medical professional of any kind, and although Rick is a physical therapist, this podcast is not intended as medical advice. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic interview with Rick Olderman about his history with chronic pain and how that history informs his physical therapy practice. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to talk to you today. I've dug into your story a little bit online and learned a little bit about you, and I think this is going to be an awesome episode of the podcast. So let's jump into it. Rick, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, uh, I'm a, a physical therapist who specializes in helping people with chronic pain. And part of this is brought on by the fact that I myself suffered from chronic pain for a while. And uh, it took me a long time to try and figure out uh, what was behind it, and mm-hmm. which I eventually did. And so now I feel in control of what's going on. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's very exciting. I can't wait to dive into that. Uh, what do you do for fun outside of work? Well, uh, let's see. I live out here in Colorado, so I enjoy camping and uh, canoeing and fishing and uh, hiking and things like that. So that's my fun. And then, you know, I've written several books and I found that I enjoy writing. Mm. So uh, I've written several books and I'm working on two others right now. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, all of that's fun. I enjoy gardening and, uh, you know, just hanging out with the family. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Rick, what is your major pain? Yeah, well, I have two. Uh, I uh, had uh, extensive neurological damage in in, uh, high school from playing football and wrestling mm. to my neck and head and shoulder and uh, which left me with chronic neck pain and then uh and then i also had chronic back pain uh, and so i wrestled with those for a while it was a little while before i went decided i wanted to be a, a pt but i entered school thinking that i was going to learn finally learn the insider secrets and solve <laughs> these things right and and that didn't happen mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. So, okay, take me back to high school. You, were you healthy, everything functioning, uh, and then you have some incidents during sports that did that change everything right away, or was it like a slow process of things starting to change? Like a lot of what happens to chronic musculoskeletal issues, it, it was a slow burn. Mm. The, the more I think about it, so when I was in junior high school wrestling, I tore my uh, gluteal muscles completely. Wow. And, uh, and then as I played football, I was tackling with poor form, apparently, and uh, basically just kind of severed all the nerves going down my arm, it was basically useless. And I didn't find that out until I was wrestling, and just couldn't use it anymore. It was just kind of a a decoy. (laughs) Wow. And then uh, after after college, well, during college and after, I started developing uh, chronic back pain too, and so you know these were things that I just didn't, uh, you know, they were not on my radar as things that I could fix. I just thought, uh, well, this is the way it's it's going to go, and I just have to live with that kind of thing. And and I, in fact, prior to going to PT school, I'd never even heard of physical therapy because I grew up on a farm. And you just kind of suck it up and move on, you know, when you have an injury out there. So uh, it wasn't until long into my 20s that I had even heard of the concept of physical therapy. And uh, and so I th- decided to explore it and become one myself and and uh, didn't get the answers that I needed. I had components to those answers, but not the not the real answers that I needed. Yeah, fascinating. So you pointed to your, um, is that your left shoulder? So you were tackling on your left shoulder and it, and it severed some nerves? Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever watched uh, football games, but uh, often you'll see a player come off the field and their arm is dangling by their sides and mm. they report them as stingers. 
Okay. Well, what that is, is actually a significant traction to the nerve and it damages the nerve. And once you have one stinger, uh, it turns out you tend to have more. Mm. And so I had them almost every week after I first started getting them. And each time that happens, it damages the nerve more and more. And, you know, me being a teenage boy, uh, you know, I just kind of just, oh, well, I guess that's the way it goes. And, you know, no one ever taught me how to talk tackle differently or I, I don't even think i told my coaches about it to be honest yeah because uh, i just thought it's pain that's the what you have to do when you play football so yeah totally and like, like you were saying you know the the mindset well i'm just gonna suck it up and push through it i think that's a very common american mindset and it can lead people to have repeat injuries like this because we don't know that we're supposed to you know pay attention to things like that or to try to yeah. alter our behavior yeah i mean i could absolutely see how that would sort of like sink into the background until it becomes a problem that cannot be ignored. Yeah. And it sounds like wrestling was the moment when you realized I can't ignore this. I was it you just couldn't even lift your left arm. Well, I could move it, but uh, it was useless. And, and then I was knocked out on the mat mm. and then my parents realized that something more serious was going on because yeah. I, that never happened before. And so, you know, within five seconds, it was diagnosed by a medical professional. <laughs> We had never even bothered, you know, taking me in to be diagnosed by it because my parents didn't even know about it. My my dad, even after, you know, I was knocked unconscious, they waited a while because they just didn't know what was going on. And mm. then my dad came downstairs and saw me working out and I was using a five pound weight to for a biceps curl on, <laughs> on that arm and, and like, you know, 30 pounds on the other. He's like, what is wrong with you? And I yeah. said, what do you mean? You know, and, and, it, <laughs> and it happened all so gradually that you know i didn't notice the that it was a problem i just thought i wasn't working hard enough you know yeah so. oh that's fascinating yeah. so it sounds like this happened really gradually but there must have come a point maybe when you were you know post high school when you realize it's like something is wrong here and it's staying wrong and i need to do something about it when did that happen well you know what the the next thing so I was, I was given six months not to use my arm okay. and my nerves regenerated and that mm. healed for the most part. So that fell off my radar. And it yeah. was uh, after I graduated from college, I traveled around the world for quite a few years. And then when I came back, you know, I was working at a, at a, at a deli and I, and I hurt my back there mm. and uh, boy, that was terrible. And so that's when I discovered physical therapy. And, yeah. uh, the, the concept of physical therapy. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I went, I, I started volunteering at a clinic and they treated my back and the pain went away immediately, but then it came back and I didn't mm. want to bother them again, you know, to, for a treatment. So I just kind of thought, you know what, I think I need to learn what's going on here. I, I, the, my premise was something I'm doing is causing this. Yeah. I've got to figure this out. What was the back injury at the deli? Well, you know, uh, we had to reach down into a case to lift out, lift out these heavy dishes of food mm. and then, you know, dish them into a container, you know, weigh it out and give it to someone. And then you have to put the heavy dish back in. Well, you're like extended uh, way out in that this case and awkward angles trying to get all of these really heavy casserole yeah. dishes of food. And, you know, all of that, it just, you know, wrecked me. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of a deli injury, but that 100% makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay, you go to physical therapy for the first time. You're introduced to physical therapy. Was it like a light bulb going off? You know, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life? You know, I thought it was, to be honest, Jesse. I, I you know, in college, I had studied pre-med and then science teaching. And I just, those, I, w I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to, to be a doctor. My brain just didn't work like that. And science <laughs> teaching just didn't appeal to me. So that was never really on my radar as something valid that I, I would return to. So I, but I was always interested in medicine, science, exercise. And then when I discovered physical therapy, I'm just like, oh, well, that's the combination of all of these things. Mm, so yeah, totally. I should, I should go for this. And so that's, that's what really got me interested in it. And, so cool. Uh, yeah, it was it was a, a light bulb moment because I was in my late twenties. You know, I, I had no direction in my life. I was just kind of like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, all my friends had, you know, gone after their careers and so forth, and everyone I knew was going down that path. You know, yeah. and I just didn't have it. So when I kind of <laughs> stumbled on it, I was just like, oh, I think this might be it. 
Yeah. Tell me about your first experience with physical therapy. So you have this low back injury. Um, Do you remember what type of um, exercises they ran you through? And do you remember how it felt and what sort of changes you noticed with your pain? Yeah. So, so to get into PT school, you have to volunteer at a clinic for many, many, many hours. And Mm so I didn't tell them that I had back pain uh, because I I thought it would keep me from getting into PT school. Mm. You know, you have to get a a letter of recommendation from somebody. And I thought, oh, they're going to write that I have back pain. And then the school's going to find out and they're going to not want to hire someone who has back pain, you know, to be a physical therapist. And so I just kind of kept it a secret from every, everyone. Mm. And then, you know, but my job was, you know, folding laundry, bending down, cl- picking up weights, moving things, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, then they just saw that, uh, you know, I had a really bad twinge one time when it, and one of the therapists noticed and he said, are, are you in pain? I said, yeah, I've got some back pain, you know, and he said, well, let me take a look at it. And he, he did a, a kind of a, it's called a muscle energy technique and it worked quite well for me temporarily. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I want to learn how to do this. And it, it really captivated me watching the physical therapist work because I was just like, you know, there was a veil. I didn't know what was underneath the skin in terms of the mm-hmm. muscles, the bone. You know, I didn't know the names of anything. And when I saw them working with things, knowing what was happening below the skin and affecting those tissues, it just really, it, it seemed so mystical to me, you know, like, oh my gosh this is really weird. They know exactly what they're doing. They can almost see what's happening underneath that person's skin and know exactly what's happening yeah. there. And so it just intrigued me to no end. I thought, oh, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Mm. And anyway, I, I received that treatment. And, and like I said, it, it felt great for a couple of weeks and then it, you know, hurt again. So yeah. I just wanted to learn how to do it. I didn't want, I didn't want to rely on other people to, to solve my pain. I, I knew I had something to do with it. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to learn. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, you know, anyone who lives with chronic pain for for a long period of time has to become their own advocate. And you you took that yes. to a to a whole different level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it was a good nexus because I had no direction and I had pain. Yeah. Oh, well, let's look at something that might solve my pain and seems to be a good alignment for me. Yeah. So I just want to make sure I have this timeline straight. So did were you sent to physical therapy by a doctor or did you decide you wanted to volunteer and become a physical therapist and then started getting physical therapy because they noticed you had pain number two number that's two. exactly okay. how it happened yeah wow so you just kind of felt fell into being treated that wasn't even your intention you just kind of wanted no. to learn and treat yourself yes wow yeah so you're very independent you just want to learn how to do something and just do it yourself you don't want to have yeah. necessarily have help from someone else yeah, well, you know, I, I I had some sneaking impression that I was doing something that was causing this. So, mm. you know, if you just tell me what it is, I'll stop doing it or start doing something else. But you know, that wasn't how those people treated. They they did they were a manual therapist, so yeah, they manipulated things and yeah. things like that. Okay, so, so then- I never got that information about why it was happening in the first place. It was just a treatment. Yeah, yeah. So then then do you go to school after that? Yeah, I went to school. I was the guy who volunteered for every back pain demonstration. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone I had back pain, but anytime I, anyone, anytime, because I still didn't tell anyone I had back pain. Yeah. <laughs> so, because uh, I didn't want to get kicked out of school. Uh, so, uh, not that that would happen. It was just my, you know, you just assume silly that, impression that yeah. if they find out you have this ulterior motive of uh, like, yeah. <laughs> I want to treat myself, that they would kick right. you out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, anytime there was a section, uh, you know, some module on back pain, I would always volunteer to be demonstrated on, you know, mm. and, and, and in the hopes nothing that, that it would they do something yeah, magical. Yeah, and hopes that it would be the solution. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I studied all of my anatomy from with my back pain in mind, and wow. you know, all all my physiology, all the treatments, and so forth. But everything I did, nothing helped. And so I was just like, "Gosh, what is going on here?" Yeah. You know. And when did you when did you solve that puzzle? Was it after school? Oh yes, after school. So after school, I, I graduated, and I learned that. I wasn't only a failure at helping my own back pain. I couldn't help anyone else's either. <laughs> okay. So, so you go to yeah. school for physical therapy, <laughs> you start practicing and you recognize that it, this isn't working. It, it absolutely was not working within several months. I was just like, this is not working for any kind of chronic pain. Wow. Uh, it, not, not only just back pain, but neck pain, headaches, anything I was taught in school was not working. It worked great for acute issues, 
it just didn't work well for chronic pain issues. I'm just like, something's going on here. Mm. And I, I was sunk into a deep depression because of it, because I was just like, you know, this is my life's calling. It was later in my life. I was now in my thirties and I'm just like, what? I've made a mistake. I've spent all this money, time studying this and spending all this money and I've made a mistake. I, I can't even be a good physical therapist. And then I eventually, and that was in a rural community. And so eventually I moved to Denver, worked at a elite health club down, downtown that had never employed a physical therapist before. And uh, immediately my schedule was filled with people with chronic and nagging issues. Yeah. And, and this is Denver with all of these elite healthcare practitioners, sure. you know, sports, you know, you know, elite people. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? It's not just me then that's doing poorly with chronic pain. It must be everybody. Yeah. There's got to be something that we're missing. Yeah. And that's when I realized, well, I had two choices. I could either quit or I could try and figure it out. Yeah. And so I decided to try and figure it out. What does that involve? What is that process? I'm imagining you at a, at a desk with like some test tubes and, you know, yeah. <laughs> just like pouring well, things. Kind of. In, the test tubes were in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> but basically what I what I had to realize was what I was taught in PT school did not does not work for chronic pain. I couldn't rely on that treatment approach any longer. Hmm. And the other idea that I had was something that I, I'm doing was causing my pain and something these people are doing is causing their pain. Hmm. And so the only thing I could really figure out to do was step back and start observing. And that's when I started noticing things. Uh, how, you know, one of them, for instance, you know, when you're, and I was also a certified personal trainer too, still am. So one of the rules is that when you're lifting, right, you need to kind of lock your back into this neutral position when you're lifting to stabilize your spine, right? Well, the, the position that we're supposed to lock our backs into to lift is the often the opposite position that people report that helps them solve their back pain. Hmm. For instance, if you lie on the ground and you hug your knees to your chest, most people love that position for their back pain. Well, yeah. that flattens the spine. But we're all told to arch our spine and lock it in when we're lifting. Hmm. And I thought, well, this doesn't make sense. Which is it? Yeah. You know? And so then I started allowing my my clients to start relaxing their spines, especially with lighter weights, you know, when they're lifting and they're just like, wow, my back feels so much better doing it like that. And then I said, well, you know, when you sit down in your office chair, why don't you just try that when you sit down in your office chair instead of sitting up erect all the time? Why don't you just relax a little bit, let that spine flatten? And suddenly people started getting better. And I'm just like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> so eventually my, my schedule was quite busy there and I started working out of my home too. And, you know, I was just observing at this point, trying to figure things out. And uh, I had a, a person come to me, she was happened to be a close friend uh, who had migraines. And so, you know, I said, well, let me try and help you. And this was after she had these after an auto accident. And uh, no one had ever told her that her migraines could possibly be caused by a musculoskeletal problem. Mm. And so she was taking medications all this time, but she didn't want to, right? So I said, well, let me try and see if I can figure this out. And so, you know, I treated her a few times and her migraines neck felt much better. But then on the last day, I decided, you know what, if she's really better, I should be able to push on that shoulder because I was, I was reproducing the force of the seatbelt mm. on her shoulder as she was in this car accident. I thought, if she's really better, I should be able to push a little bit on the shoulder, just like that seatbelt did, and she shouldn't have migraines. And I did that. She left. The next day, she had the worst migraines ever mm. in years. And I'm just like, what just happened? You know? And then uh, I, I, could, I was just obsessed with this. And it, uh, I wrote this recent book called Solving the Pain Puzzle, mm -hmm. Cases of 25 Years as a Physical Therapist. And after writing this book, I realized that I think I've got a little bit of OCD around all this stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I was obsessing with her about her issue for like three days. And then I had this epiphany and I instantly saw all the anatomy of her neck and shoulder girdle systems. And I'm mm -hmm. just like, I know what's going on. And so I got her to come back. I taped up her shoulder into a better position and 
her, she hadn't had migraines since, since we fixed her shoulder girdle system. You like tape it into a position and have her do like exercises to strengthen, to yeah. keep in that position. Is that, is that yeah, the idea? Exactly. I, I just formulated, I, I, when I saw her again, I saw, oh my God, her shoulder blade isn't in the right position. Mm. And so I, I'd never been taught how to do this. So I thought it seems to need this. So I yeah. just grabbed a couple pieces of tape. I taped it into a better position and lo and behold, her migraines melted away that day. And once we solved the reason her shoulder blades weren't in the good position, I don't think she, she's had them since. Wow. Yeah, this is fascinating. I actually um, strained my rotator cuff back in college. I used to be a kayak instructor in San Diego and I went to physical therapy for it and I didn't get better. Um, and then yeah. I went to a chiropractor for the first time and he's like, yeah, your shoulder's out of alignment. Three seconds, pop something in place, pain went away in an instant and stayed gone. Um, so yeah, this is really interesting. This idea of like, sometimes it doesn't matter how much you try to exercise or try to strengthen muscles or, uh, unless you get the underlying thing back into place, it won't necessarily do anything. Yes, you're exactly right. And, and so what I figured out, what I've learned since then is why your shoulder was not in alignment in the first place. Yeah. So you, we, we have control over these things. I, we can go into, you know, all, all of how I figured all of this out. But uh, sure. anyway, that's, that's what, the, and, and this is the other thing that we should talk about since you just brought it up is that, you know, you brought up uh, that physical therapy didn't help and then chiropractic did. And it was about getting at the root cause. Yeah. Right. So what I've learned is that we as practitioners have belief systems that we operate by. And there are some therapists that believe that they should be able to solve everything via manipulation, soft tissue work, or acupuncture, you name it. It doesn't matter. But it's a belief system. And so what we do then is we tend to use that belief system as a filter to filter out other things that could help our patients. Mm. And so your, the chiropractor's belief system was manipulation is where what you need. And the physical therapist's belief system was probably some kind of rotator cuff strengthening yeah. was what you needed, yeah. right? And so in that case, the chiropractor's system worked for you. But that chiropractor's system may not include rotator cuff approaches. I needed to both. Solve. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. To keep it right. from happening again, I needed to strength. I need to get it back in place and then strengthen that muscle. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I learned this when I took. Uh, so one of the things that I based my biomechanics off of is uh, research from Dr. Shirley Saruman out of Washington University in St. Louis, and I took all of her courses because she focuses on movement impairment syndromes that cause chronic pain, and I thought, and I knew that something I was doing was causing my pain. Yeah. And so I thought well, this sounds like it's that, you know? So I thought, let me take these courses and read her textbooks and all this kind of stuff. And I did, and it was transformative. Mm. And so, but I made friends with another PT during that time. And uh, on the last of her seminars, I ha we happened to be taken at the same time. I said, hey, how's this going for you? And he said, eh, <laughs> you know, and I said, what are you talking about? This is like, I'm having miracles using this information. <laughs> and he says, yeah, but I'm a manual therapist, so maybe I'll just use it for a home program. Mm. And that's when I realized uh, this whole belief system thing. Yeah, He would not entertain the idea of biomechanics and movement problems as the source and solution of pain. And so none of his patients would benefit from that either. Yeah, And that's when I decided to write my first series of books, the Fixing You series, because I felt like, oh my gosh. I've got to do an end round of all of these practitioners who aren't even maybe considering movement as the cause of someone's pain. Hmm. I've got to explain, I've got to take this directly to the people, you know, <laughs> I, wasn't about to, I wasn't about to write another textbook because Dr. Sharman had already done that, but there was nothing out there that translated that technical medical dense information into something actionable and simple to understand. And that's when I wrote my, that first series of six books. Wow. Fascinating. I'm so interested about this idea of belief structures because yes. I, you know, I, this really rings true for me as uh, my, my background is that, you know, I, I'm 38 years old and I had, will have a chronic illness and it was a huge mystery. 
up until very recently, we now think it is mast cell activation syndrome. The medication for that has transformed my life. But um, before I was on this medication, I had, you know, I was losing all of my mobility. I was using a wheelchair to get around. I was in constant oh full body pain, muscle spasms. Um, you know, I was an ambulatory wheelchair user, so I would go back and forth from a cane to a wheelchair. Um, and, you know, just using a cane, leading on that cane, I started to develop chronic pain in other areas because of, like you're saying, like I w what I was doing, the way I was moving was creating a, a new chronic pain issue um, that, you know, completely resolved when I went to a wheelchair. <laughs> but then I started having other different, you know, chronic pain right. issues. Um, and yeah, now that I, I, now I'm mobile again because of this medication. So I'm, and now I'm noticing, you know, all of these things are starting to kind of work themselves out. Uh, my chronic pain level is the lowest it's been in years, um, which is really, really exciting. And for me, it was like, I needed this specific medication. Um, but in that journey to try to find this diagnosis, I've been to so many professionals of all kinds, uh, you know, mainstream medicine, alternative medicine, every different kind. And everyone, you're so right, everyone has a belief structure. Everyone has a lane that they're in. And yes. the, the answer that I needed was sort of like in between lanes or, <laughs> or in a lane that almost no one ever travels in. So it's like this weird off ramp that's going off the freeway and it's yes. closed. So no one even goes over there. <laughs> it's like, but that's where I need to go. You know, like it's, it's under construction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. It's under construction. Um, so it wasn't until I found a doctor who was, you know, willing to kind of look across all these different lines and keep pushing open new doors for me that I started to make progress. But I think that this idea of like doctors being in these belief structures is very dangerous and and prevents people from getting care oftentimes you know one of the the main ones that i can think of is pe people being told when they go in saying hey i have this mystery illness being told that it's anxiety you know that happens constantly and almost everyone that i talk to on the podcast is gaslit by doctors that their issue is not real um quote unquote real even though anxiety itself is a real issue that needs to be treated um if somebody has anxiety but uh but yeah, I feel like doctors being sort of stuck in their lane, stuck in their mindset and being sort of unwilling to uh, look under the surface and try to figure out what's happening in someone's body prevents people from getting care for so, so long. Do you mind if I just speak to that for just a second? Please, absolutely. Yeah. So a, a lot of this is, I mean, you can describe it as stuck and that's the way it appears, but it's how we're trained in mm, medicine. Yeah. So we're trained, and, and I've recently come to, to think of this as a component thinking approach. In medicine, our whole focus is to break the body down into pieces to find out which piece is broken. And we have lots of scans and tests and so forth to determine those broken, what those broken pieces are and treat the pieces, right? And like I said earlier, this is great for you, uh, treating, in, in, my, in my field anyway, this is great for treating acute issues, right? Mm -hmm. Strains, sprains, broken bones, yeah. surgeries, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I call it component thinking because we're trained to identify the tissue, look very closely. And, and in, in physical therapy, we've got probably a thousand different orthopedic tests to identify exactly which tissue is, is damaged, right? But we have zero tests that tell us why that tissue is damaged. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. So the assumption is, oh, all I have to do is treat the tissue and it'll feel better. But that's the difference between acute issues and chronic issues. Chronic issues, you have to understand the whys and treat mm -hmm. the whys behind mm -hmm. those components. And so in physical therapy anyway, more and more research is always being conducted and we're figuring out all these little pixels of the body, right? But there's no one stepping back and putting these pixels together into a functional paradigm. This is why we don't do well, at least I didn't do well, and a lot of therapists, I think, don't do well, is because we're treating pixels. It would be like looking at Van Gogh's Starry Night and, and, you know, or just having one blue pixel and saying, oh, this, here, even if I had all the pixels of that famous painting, you still have to have the big picture to know how to put them together. Sure. And so this is what we're missing, is the system's understanding of the body. And this goes into how anxiety, dietary, allergens, mold, all this kind of stuff, all in 
you know, we can talk about how that influences the musculoskeletal system too, because that's also what I've kind of gotten into in, to some degree. Ooh, in my yeah. Oh, I'm very interested in that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, uh, you know, you, well, I just say that because you brought up anxiety. Well, yeah. anxiety can cause musculoskeletal pain. And so it's difficult, but the, the nice thing is the way I've been treating patients, the results are so consistent. I almost know within a, just a few treatments, whether there's something else contributing to this, like a dietary allergen, mm. inflammatory issue, or an emotional trauma type of thing going on that's contributing to this pain. Because when you fix the musculoskeletal system, pain resolves very, as a systems approach, pain resolves very quickly. Mm. And it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I don't care whether you've had it for 20 years, it doesn't matter. I know exactly how fast you should be proceeding. And mm. if you're not, there's something else going on here. So the way we have it in our bodies is that we have this system called the fascial system, all right? And fascia is the tissue that connects everything to everything in the body. Well, Thomas Myers is a researcher in fascia, and he identified that there are these superhighways of fascia that run through the body. And they run from the head to the toe in, in many cases. He identified the same three main fascial superhighways in the body that corresponded to Dr. Saruman's movement impairment system, syndromes, the top three syndromes that cause almost all spinal pain in the body. And then both of those identified the same three patterns that Thomas Hanna, who focuses on neurological uh, tension as drivers of chronic pain in the body. All three of these different pr uh, practitioners identified the exact same three patterns of dysfunction, biomechanical, fascial, and neurological that are all contributing to almost all spinal pain in the body, unbeknownst to each other. Mm. And so when you talk about anxiety, the way anxiety happens is that uh, anxiety elicits a, uh, a response by, from our immune system to release something called cytokines, right? And cytokines travel in our bloodstream similar to hormones. It's a, it's, it's a particulate or a molecule, all right? Well, in areas of mechanical stress in the body, such as when curves change directions in our spine, whenever a curve changes direction, that's a source of mechanical tension in the body right off the bat. And so fascia is laid down in these areas of mechanical tension in the body. Uh, and it's a certain kind of fascia called myofibroblasts. Myo means muscle. That has up to four times the contractile capacity of normal fascia. So when we are under anxiety, uh, or when we're having anxiety or stress or anything, it could be a, a response from something that we've eaten, breathed in, anything. Our body is feeling attacked. It releases these cytokines, so it then travel to these mechanical stress areas where the myofibroblasts are, which then cause them to contract and cause pain. So this is why when we're sick or when we're anxious or whatever, we have more pain is because it's loading up that whole fascial system. Mm. And more fascia is concentrated in areas of vulnerability in our body. Yeah. So being, ex so for me, where like one of my triggers is mold, if I'm exposed to mold, this yes. process will take place. Or yes. maybe if I'm super, super stressed out, same process could take place. And Absolutely. That, so that could be where part of this disconnect is, is that um, instead of trying to you know, dig in and kind of see, okay, what is causing this process? It's easier to just say it's, an it's anxiety because it right. could be, because that's yes. one of the potential possibilities. And what you're saying is that when you're working with a patient, if you start to work with them and you notice their pain is not getting better, I mean, maybe you start by trying to address anxiety um, or trying to calm the nervous system. And if that's not working, there is an external stressor on the nervous system preventing this body from, from calming. Is that sort of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And, and the whole time I'm reading their body mm. from day one to, to, to anticipate something like this happening. So because I understand it can happen, that's part of my evaluation. Yeah. I don't have a specific test for it, but I'm looking at how they're responding to my touch, how they're moving, their, the, the tone of their voice, all of these intangibles, right, are speaking to me while I'm treating them. Yeah. And so if they're not responding, that's when I start thinking more about these intangibles. Mm. And by the way, this is my theory of from research that I've put together myself. Yeah. I don't think anyone has put together that idea of how 
the pathway of anxiety or dietary issues create musculoskeletal pain. So I, you know, don't take my word for it. It's just what I think is going on based yeah. on the research that I've uncovered. Well, because we're missing something, you know, like we keep, we are missing something. We keep talking yes. about, and uh, you know, I, uh, listeners of this podcast know that, you know, everyone who yeah. listens to this podcast knows yes. that there are things missing in the medical system um, that yes. we are trying to fill in these gaps. And it sounds like that is what your life's work has become is trying to figure out what is missing here. Absolutely. Why, why do you think that medicine is is taught this way why do you think people are trained with these belief structures that that sort of only work for acute pain or acute situations you know like i you know i bring this up a lot but i i had testicular cancer right before i turned 30. the medical treatment that i got was insanely good and so mm -hmm. fast and i was absolutely shocked because i had been dealing with this chronic issue for years and years and years and no one could help me but when i had an acute problem it was like snap your fingers and they've they've treated it and it's gone. It was wild. My head spun around and I was absolutely shocked that the medical system could work that way. Um, so I have also lived through this like chronic versus acute thing. And I see it over and over again where people with chronic issues are not getting good care. Um, so why do you think that the med medical system is set up that way? Yeah, well, it's because the gold standard to be included in research are double blind studies. All right. So you, you have to, in, in order to, for research to occur, you need to be able to isolate something, test it to prove whether, you know, with it, something is better or without it, something is better mm. or worse or whatever. So, you, so if, if you can't create a research project around something and prove that it's good or bad, it doesn't make it to research. At best, it might be, be wow. included as a case study, wow. right? And no one reads case studies, or no one is going to change their treatment approach based on a case study. A case study might be an interesting footnote, right? More than anything else. So what we're talking about, so what research tends to focus on are these components of the body and how the, how the body works together as components, because we can isolate components, but it's really difficult to isolate systems Yeah. because by definition, they're not isolatable right yeah you, for instance we can't just take one small muscle out of the back and say how is this muscle working and exclude all other muscles in the back right right, right. that's not how the body works right so that's why is th is because this gold standard for inclusion is research and without research you're you're just conjecting you know it's just conjecture or anecdotal evidence and no one pays attention to any of those things. And, and you know, for chronic issues, these things take years, take years to figure out. Um, they can take years to develop. And trying to run a research study with multiple people with something right. that takes years, that alone is, is a, a barrier to entry versus an acute issue where it's like, yeah, we can test all these people and we can run this one specific test and do it all within the next two months and get all this right. data that we th then spend years analyzing. Um, that alone is a barrier to entry. So that this is that's fascinating. That, I've never thought about that before. That's really interesting. Yeah, that, that's kind of my take on it. I'm just a lowly physical therapist, so what do yeah. I know? But uh, that's that's my take on it. After being in this industry for 25 plus years now, what was the what was the secret to your back pain? Uh, well, it was a combination of Dr. Saruman's, Thomas Myers, and Thomas Hanna's work. Hmm. So I, I understood the pattern of the issue, and I understood the fascial components of that of that issue. And what I didn't understand was the uh, tension aspect of that issue. And so once I put all of this together, and by the way, even with all three of their areas of knowledge, what none of these three researchers really figured out was why these things, why these patterns were occurring in the first place. And so that's what I have devoted my last 20 years to figuring out is, but what am I doing that's causing this pattern to occur in me? Hmm. So, th so that really gets down to what you mentioned earlier, Jesse, was, the, you know, the root cause of things. Lots of people call things root causes based on their understanding of how those things work. But if you don't have a complete understanding of a system, then your idea of what the root cause is is going to be much different than my understanding of what a root cause is. And even if that treatment helps you, that doesn't mean that it solved the root cause. 
It just means that it solved the problem enough that you don't have pain. Yes. And what I have learned <laughs> is that, you know, just because we don't have pain doesn't mean that everything is working perfectly. Yeah. Because our body has many redundant systems. Yeah. Right? This is getting into one of my paranoias now about my own body, which is like now that we think I have mast cell activation syndrome, no one has any idea why. You know, we don't have mm -hmm. a why. The word idiopathic is thrown around a lot, which just means we don't know why stop asking. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or it's just happening, you know, and we can't figure out why. And sometimes it, maybe it's because that highway is under construction that drives you to that answer. Um, we just don't know yet. Um, so I have been wondering, you know, is, is mast cell activation syndrome, is that my answer? Because I still don't even have a firm diagnosis. Or is that a symptom of some other process where if I could get at the other process, then I wouldn't even have to treat MCAS, which is a huge, incredibly complicated thing to treat. I'm on so much medication, low histamine diet, this very specific exercise plan. It's like really difficult to stabilize mast cells. And mm. I just keep thinking like, well, if there was something else, like if there's one switch that I could flip that would just turn off this entire construct that is so complicated in my body, like if that existed, that would be amazing. But there's no real way for me to figure that out. You know, I, I, I don't know how to do it. I'm, it's, I'm not going to medical school to learn. You know, I don't, have that, right. I don't have that drive because I think for a lot of people like me, it's like, well, now I'm functional and that's so much better than where I was that I just want to hit the ground running and get back to what I love to do and, you know, creating music and, you know, making this podcast and um, doing all the things that make my life rich and wonderful. Um, now that I can do those things, I just want to do those things. But there still could be this mystery underneath it all that I don't even know how to approach solving. Yeah, this, this brings up that uh, I, I have a, an ebook. It's free, by the way, if anyone wants to grab it on my website. But, um, there, you know, we've all heard that story of the elephant, right? There's an elephant and there are blind men in the room trying to figure out what the elephant is. Mm. And one of them feels the leg and thinks, oh, the elephant's like a, a tree. <laughs> and another one feels the trunk and says, oh, the elephant's like a python snake. You yeah. know, another one feels an ear. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's like a leaf, you yeah. know, and so forth. <laughs> so they're all feeling different parts of the elephant trying to describe what the elephant is and they're, and they're all right, but they're all wrong. Yeah. And so really what you, what we need is an, is an overlying, you know, view of what that elephant is. To really understand what that is mm. i don't i don't believe that that exists in medicine so what this does is it puts the onus of understanding that you are the elephant that these doctors are trying to figure out only you know who you are and so you know what's true to you mm. and so you know you that's why you have to be critical when you're receiving treatment or people are telling you what they think is going on, understand that they are working from an internal bias that has been um, trained in them. They need to stay in their lanes, as you mentioned earlier, because there's such depth in each lane sure. of information to know and master. It, it's difficult to have three lanes and have depth of knowledge in three lanes of traffic, Yeah, right? And so that's why everyone is staying in their lanes because the lanes are so deep. Yeah. Because of our ever, you know, our ever progressive research drilling down into deeper and deeper issues in the body. But there's nothing that's coming back and saying, wait, which highway are we on anyway? Right? Yeah. And where's this, <laughs> where where's are this we highway even going? going? Yeah. <laughs> what state are we in? Are we even in this? What country are we in? Yeah. And there's no one that's, you're right. So that's where you yeah. come in. You have to know which country you're in and, yeah. and which lane they're looking at. Self-advocacy. Yeah. That, that's really hard to do as a patient. Yeah. And it, that's another thing that can take years to learn and is critical for each and every one of us because you might get lucky and make some progress. You might get lucky and find someone who's willing to back up and look at your big picture. But, but that doesn't seem to be the way that the medical system is set up. So... Um, so it really is going to take some luck to get to that point. And you have to be the person to piece all these things together. It's like, okay, well, this doctor is telling me that, you know, my magnesium is low. And this doctor is telling me that my, I have a positive ANA test, but they're not talking to each other. And, you know, I don't know if there's a connection. 
And I need to, I need to be the one to sort of ask those questions and research things and bring things up at appointments. I always have a long list of things to ask at every appointment. I keep notes because I know from experience that I will forget what I need to ask. And I, I counsel all my patients to do the same. Yeah. So, okay. Speaking of your patients, what is your approach? If you have a new patient, where do you start trying to figure out how to help someone deal with chronic pain? Yeah. So first of all, you know, my, my approach is mostly musculoskeletal. All right. And so I've broken the body over the years into two different systems of function. One, anyone who comes in with any kind of low back pain, anything down into the legs, anything, foot pain, knee pain, whatever, that's one system. And that's the rib cage on down to the bottom of the foot. And that's our, our body operates basically as that is one of the systems. Anyone who comes to me with any kind of neck, headache, shoulder, you know, hand, whatever, the, that's the upper body system. And that starts at the pelvis and goes up to the, up to the upper body. Of course, there's crossover. And sometimes I have to use my understanding of that crossover to, you know, treat something in the neck from the foot, but often that's not necessary. So basically, uh, I've come up with these, uh, this approach to understanding what's going on by creating a comprehensive, but very simple exam to understand the major players and what are commonly going wrong with these major players that is causing most chronic pain that most practitioners overlook. Mm-hmm. And this is what I train my therapists in my clinic. You know, no one got to be a therapist in my clinic unless I trained them. And because I didn't want them to be using their component approach to solving chronic issues yeah. when it doesn't work. And so uh, within six or eight months, they were all master clinicians. They could solve anything that walked through our door, but they needed to understand this systems approach to solving things first. Yeah. And that's basically how I do things. So just coming back to your story, just to wrap things up here, as this person who lived through chronic pain yourself, mm-hmm. couldn't find answers and, and didn't even know how to ask for help, I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like no. kind of feeling like you had to keep that pain to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, going through this journey of, of learning all these things, seeing these holes in the medical system putting together something that not just worked for you, but seems to work for your patients, and then continuing to, you know, fight that good fight of, of doing research and trying to find more things to help more people. How do you feel about your journey now at this point in it that you are seeing results and uncovering things that are sort of mind-bending and uh, helpful? Well, I, I, I mean, of course, I feel good about it. You know, it's taken me a long time to get here, and it, it's hard to see that it's a good journey until you get to the end of the journey and say, and see that you've, you've done something. But, yeah. uh, so I, I, I feel great about that. And I'm, I'm, you know, my mission now, uh, cause you know, these 25 years of being a PT, I've just kind of kept my head down and done my work in my clinic and try to put all these pieces together. And I've never really tried to ever get the word out before because mm. I was afraid of being attacked, uh, cause no one else really thinks like this. And, uh, also, you know, I, of course I don't have hard and fast research to support everything I do. I just have clinical experience to support mm. with what I'm doing. Sure. And uh, so, you know, I've, I've been reluctant to be the person to speak out, but I, I feel so confident in, in my approach to understanding the body from a system standpoint. Now I'm, I'm now willing to take that risk. Yeah. That's fascinating also. Yeah. I mean, just putting your neck out there for, for any situation, getting up on a pedestal and saying anything can be terrifying. But you have this system in place that you feel is working that you want other people to have access to. Um, So, yeah, that's that must be a huge change to kind of step out and do that. And that must be, you know, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, That must be, you know, part to do with these books that you're releasing. So I know you actually have to go because you have a patient. Um, But before you run, please tell us where people can go to uh, connect with your work online, your website, any books that you'd like to direct people towards. Sure, sure. Uh, if you go to rickolderman.com, and uh, that's O-L-D-E-R-M-A-N.com, uh, you'll find all of my books, links to Amazon. You know, you can b- purchase them on Amazon if you want. I've created downloadable, or I'm sorry, not downloadable, digital home programs to help people solve pain from head to toe. I've even created a practitioner's training program to teach anyone from coaches to surgeons this approach to understanding the body from a systems standpoint. Uh, I've got free chapters for my new book solving the pain puzzle on there that you can read if you like uh all sorts of things so that's where to go 
Awesome. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Um, Rick, this was so fun. What a blast. Absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your expertise with us. Really fascinating way of thinking about the medical system. And if we look at the, not just the body as a system, but the medical system itself as a system, trying to understand how that system works, I think can be really beneficial for patients who are sort of, you know, stuck and trying to find a way forward. Yes, uh, agreed. Your doctors are trying to do the best they can, but you have to understand their training. Mm. It's very specific. And that's just the way medicine is right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, amazing job on the podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I had fun, Jesse. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Pain Podcast.